and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. Last week, we talked a bit about what Christian worship looked like. And if you remember, it looked actually a lot like what we do in the Episcopal Church, what the Eastern Orthodox do, what the Roman Catholics do, what Lutherans do, and lots of other Christian groups Sunday by Sunday. So the first part was based on something that looks a bit like synagogue worship, where you have readings and prayers and a sermon. And then the second part was the Eucharist, this liturgy of the consecration of the bread and the wine, the body and blood of Christ. But there was one big difference between today's services and the services in the first and second centuries. And this was that at any time during any service, you might hear a knock on the door. And maybe the doorkeepers would answer the door. Maybe they would just turn off the lights and pretend nobody's home. But one way or the other, the door might be forcibly flung open and Roman soldiers would pour in. And they would ask the question, who here is a Christian? And everybody that raised their hand would get hauled off to jail. And there in jail, you'd have a choice. You could either make sacrifice to a Roman god, perhaps to the emperor or the spirit that watched over the emperor. This might mean buying an animal and having it slaughtered. Much more likely it would mean simply burning a few grains of incense, or maybe even just stepping on a picture of Jesus or cursing the name of Jesus. And then if you refuse to take this easy out, then you would be put in a queue for execution in some public and pretty awful way. So you might be thrown to wild animals in the midst of a public spectacle. You might be attacked by professional gladiators as thousands and thousands of people watched. Or you might just be summarily executed, maybe by something like crucifixion, a penalty thought very fitting for Christians, or in some other grisly and barbaric way. First of all, why so much barbarity for the Roman treatment of their prisoners? In an era where there were no police, you very rarely had a crime stopped in progress. You also didn't have a department of detectives who could trace down the murderer or recover the stolen goods or whatever it was. So the Romans tried to do preventative policing, which meant that when they did catch someone, they made this huge, terrifying, horrific, grisly example of them. So the Romans were really awful to prisoners to kind of create this like billboard. If you commit this crime, this will happen to you. Think twice about stealing. Think twice about rebelling against the empire. Think twice about murder or whatever it is. As horrific and just terrible as this logic is, it at least sort of makes sense from the Roman perspective. But why do this to Christians? Why put up these kind of human suffering billboards saying, if you become a Christian, this is what will happen to you because this is so bad and so evil and we do not want this happening in our empire? Today we live in a marketplace of religions, and so if your church starts doing things that don't make sense to you, or making pronouncements that you disagree with, you can leave that church and go to the church down the road. And you might even leave Christianity and check out Hinduism or Buddhism. You might have grown up as a Hare Krishna and discovered Judaism. We have a veritable smorgasbord of religious options to choose from. But for the Romans, there was the sense that there were all these different ancient peoples, and each of these ancient peoples had their own gods and their own religion that was intrinsic to that people. 
Religion was a defining characteristic, like your language or any other aspect of your culture. And you didn't choose your religion. Instead, it was a part of who you were, a part of the society to which you belonged. And to turn your back on that religion was almost like turning your back on that society. What's more, in ancient Rome, there was a sense that the Roman Republic was preserved by the Roman pantheon. And so if you were in any sort of governmental office or military service, there were these necessary sacrifices that you made to the gods to preserve Rome itself. And if you were refusing to participate in those, that was seen as literal treason. For the ancient Romans, if you were Greek, you worshipped Zeus. If you were Roman, you worshipped Jupiter. If you were an Irish Celt, you might worship Annaliffy. If you were Egyptian, you might worship Isis and Anubis. But for the Romans, there was this sort of sense that all religious practice was basically the same, that Jupiter and Zeus, definitely the same person, Isis and maybe some other Greco-Roman god had a lot of overlap, Annaliffy and Minerva, who can you really even tell the difference? Maybe they just have on different outfits. And even if you did worship a god that was outside of the Roman pantheon and couldn't directly be correlated with one of the Roman gods, it was kind of like you worship the god that hovered above your own specific country, Romans worship the gods that that hovered above their own specific countries. And there was this real sort of sense that like gods were appropriate to specific places. And it wasn't a threat to Roman religion. So it's kind of like you grew up in this neighborhood, you worship this god. I grew up in this neighborhood, I worship that god. And it's totally okay. It's the one is not a threat to the other. The one crazy exception to this system of thinking in the ancient world was Judaism. And all these different ancient writers will talk about how weird the Jewish people are because they don't just worship a specific God. In fact, they deny the existence of every other God. And they say that their God completely transcends all the other gods. All the other gods live somewhere. They live on Mount Olympus or at the bottom of the sea or in a lake or whatever. The God of Judaism isn't somewhere. Instead, he's underlying the whole creation. He's holding the whole creation together from millisecond to millisecond. The other gods would be in rivalry with one another. Hephaestus might make a trap for Ares. Ares might go on a date with Hephaestus' wife. But the god of Judaism, in contrast, was infinitely different from everything else in creation. He wasn't a being among other beings. He was the creator of everything, but infinitely beyond the whole creation. He was present to the creation, but infinitely different from the rest of the creation. So if you asked an Isis worshiper, do you believe in Athena? They might say, well, Athena's not my goddess. You know, I go with Isis. Isis is the one who like gets me what I need. She's, she's my gal. Uh, but they wouldn't say it's impossible for any other god to exist because it's only Isis. But Judaism would say, no, all those other gods, those are fictions. Not only are they less powerful than our god, they're not powerful at all. They are dumb, mute idols. They're statues made by human hands. They are sacred groves planted by some guy a long time ago, who knows when. But there's nothing real to them. And for this reason, Jewish people were a real mystery to the Romans. Because this is just unlike any other ancient culture. Just denying that every pantheon of every nation was just a kind of silly fiction. But Jewish people were ancient. So the Romans thought that there were all these ancient peoples that had almost this absolute right to exist, 
because they were around since the beginning. So the Egyptians, there have always been Egyptians in Egypt. They've always worshipped Isis. They've always lived by the Nile. They've always drawn people who are walking like an Egyptian. They've always just done all this Egyptian stuff. There have always been Goths. The Goths are always bearded and illiterate and totally uncultured. And my ancestors, by the way, and uh, just a sort of awful, ridiculous people who don't know anything about anything and have always worshipped Odin. Jewish people have always lived in kind of Israel-Palestine. They have always worshipped at this incredibly huge temple, and they have always denied the existence of all the other gods. So even though this was deeply offensive to a Greco-Roman and really just sort of any ancient world sensibility about divinity, they've just always done it this way. So you kind of have to just let them be. And originally, as we've talked about maybe ad nauseum at this point, Christianity was just another sect of Judaism. So initially the Romans saw Christianity as just an offshoot of this one religion that just has one God and is sort of offensively dismissive to all the other religions, but is so old and is so respectable that you also just kind of had to let the Christians be. But it very quickly became clear that Judaism and Christianity were separating in dramatic ways. So as we talked about last time, Christians were kind of being kicked out of the synagogue, not every specific synagogue, and maybe not even dragged out by bouncers, but just becoming less and less welcome because the message of Christianity was being seen more and more as a very different message from the message of Judaism. And Judaism certainly welcomed anyone, certainly welcomed Gentiles into the synagogue, into learning about Judaism, thinking about Judaism, but they weren't actively promoting Judaism among Greco-Roman peoples. If you happen to wander into a synagogue and wanted to have a seat and listen and come back again on the next Saturday, that was totally fine. But it wasn't the norm for them to be out on the street corner yelling at philosophers about how great Christianity was. The church, on the other hand, was out, probably not yelling at philosophers, but talking to philosophers. We see Paul in Acts go to Athens. And rather than showing up at the local synagogue, we're told, he goes to the Oropagus. And the Oropagus was this giant flat rock where the philosophers would debate things. We're told that the people of Athens love nothing better than new things, and they spend all day long talking about all these novel ideas and novel religions and so forth. And so when Paul shows up and says, hey, I got this great new religion to tell you about, everybody's all ears. But he's talking to them, not just in terms of Judaism, but in terms of Greek philosophy. He says, oh, people of Athens, I've spent a couple of days as a tourist. I've looked at some of your monuments, that uh, Parthenon, very impressive, level statues, everything is looking great. I see what a religious people you are. And as I was walking around, I found this altar to an unknown God. And this is the God I am here to proclaim to you. So he just leaves out Judaism altogether and just starts talking to them in terms of Greek philosophy, in terms of Greco-Roman religion. So soon the church is reaching out to all these Gentiles in a way that Judaism never did. And so to the Romans, it seems like, A, they've really broken ties with the religion from which they emerged, Judaism, and B, they're not acting like Judaism anymore. They're actively going after all of these Gentile converts telling them that their own gods, the Roman gods, don't exist, so they should join this new religion. So when we're talking about things that happened many thousands of years ago, the facts are not always 100% established on specific historical incidents. We do have a couple of records from about 150 and then a couple of hundred years later 
about an interesting incident that may have happened in terms of Christianity's reception by the Roman Empire. So writing around the year 200, the writer Tertullian tells us about a note that the Emperor Tiberius received from Pontius Pilate. And in this, Pilate tells him all about what happened to Jesus, the miracles that were performed, his resurrection, and this religious movement that was happening within Judaism that was recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. Tiberius receives this letter. He's like, oh my gosh, this is like some big stuff. Clearly, this is an important local god that needs to be acknowledged by the Roman Senate. At this time, to be declared a god actually took a piece of legislation within the Roman Senate. So if the Roman Senate didn't declare you a god, you were not the object of legitimate worship. But if they did declare you a god, be you an emperor, be you a beggar, be you whoever, then people could build temples to you and legitimately offer you worship. So Tiberius brings these reports from Judea to the Senate and they and says, what do you think, guys? Do you think this maybe is a, a legitimate new god? The Roman Senate, they look at these reports and they're like, nah, nah, this is probably just some huckster magic tricks, you know, who knows? But these miracles probably aren't actually miracles. We're not going to admit this guy into the Pantheon. If they had admitted Christ into the Pantheon, it probably wouldn't have made a huge difference to the history of Christianity in some ways, at least theologically, because the recognition of Jesus as one of the minor Roman gods, that would still have literally nothing to do with Christianity. But in this case, the Senate did not accept this application for divinity, and so he was rejected. And some scholars would point to this moment, if in fact this actually happened, because remember this report is like 165 years after the fact. Although it is being written in a document that is going to Roman officials in defense of Christianity. So maybe this was a recognized fact among Roman officials. Regardless, some scholars think that this might be the beginning of Roman edicts against Christians. So the Romans had a couple of different conceptions of religion. There were legitimate religions. So you might have like the cult of Isis, or you might have the worship of the 12 Olympians, or you might have the worship of a specific emperor who either his genius, his, his kind of spirit, or the emperor himself, if he'd been declared a god. But then you had a category called superstitio externa. These were foreign superstitions. And they were seen not as cults that were compatible with the official Roman cult, but instead were detrimental to the fabric of Roman society. So you had a cult like the cult of Dionysus that was really driven underground. And it's because their worship involved maybe tearing people limb from limb, certainly getting really drunk, and all kinds of stuff that the Romans were horrified by. You might have other cults that encouraged um, uh, self-castration among male worshippers. There were just all sorts of cults that the Romans were like, okay, this is gross and weird and creepy, and we definitely don't want this happening in the Roman Empire. And at some point, Christianity was declared... Superstitio. It was declared as this pernicious superstition that was detrimental to the fabric of Roman life. And part of this was this denial of the other gods, the treasonous uh, refusal to take part in official Roman sacrifices. But this may not actually have been the primary reason the Romans hated and feared the Christians so much. Instead, writes the Latin writer Tertullian around the year 200, Christians were considered by Romans as monsters of wickedness. 
He says we are accused of observing a holy rite in which we kill a little child and then eat it, in which, after the feast, we practice incest. This is what is constantly laid at our charge. So the Christians, you know, think of themselves as just kind of regular old Christians, like doing their thing, worshiping Jesus. But the Romans are like, okay, these people are cannibals and they kill children and they practice free love and incest. These are like the worst of the worst. Christianity is this creepy, terrifying death cult and we need to get it out of the Roman Empire. These guys are just real creeps and terrifying to all of us. So how did this misconception become commonplace? Rumor is the agent by which these things spread, says Tertullian. But there is sort of a logic to it. So if you are down at the coffee shop on a Sunday morning and there are some Christians sitting in the booth behind you and they're like, oh man, the celebration of the body and blood of Christ this morning was fantastic. Yeah, when we consumed the body and drank the blood of the Son of God, that was really just a great A moment in our Christian lives. Uh, and then we all exchanged the kiss of peace and everyone was kissing each other. And uh, we were just so, so much at, uh, in a sense of um, just absolute love for our brothers and sisters. You might say, wait a minute, what are these guys talking about? They just ate the flesh and drank the blood of somebody's son. And then they all exchanged a kiss of peace with their brothers and sisters. These, what is going on here? What, what is wrong with these people? And Tertullian goes into much more graphic and sort of horrific detail about what Romans think that the Christians are doing. Each Christian has to steal a baby and they bring a baby and a silver knife to the worship. And then they, it's just all kinds of like just creepy, gross Roman stuff. But Tertullian says... This is all just this kind of like laughable thing because A, it has nothing to do with Christian worship or anything that Christians do. B, it's crazy that the Romans believe all this yet never have investigated it. And he's like, who do you think it is that is telling you all this stuff? If you had actually taken part in one of these rituals, would you then admit to everybody else that you yourself are a cannibal so that you could be tried and killed? Or is this from some... um observer who's snuck into one of these rituals? If so, who is this person? Why hasn't he ever testified in any trial of Christians? He says, this is so laughable because with every other crime, you investigate to see whether or not the charges are true. But in this case, Tertullian says, you take no pains to elicit the truth of what we have been so long accused. Either bring then the matter to the light of day, if you believe it, or give it no credit as having never been inquired into. On the ground of your double dealing, we are entitled to lay it down to you that there is no reality in the thing which you dare not even investigate. So the Romans are persecuting Christians because they think they are cannibalistic, free-loving, child-murdering psychopaths. And from this perspective, the inhumanity shown to Christians, the just insane cruelty of the Roman persecutions, kind of starts to make sense because these people sound awful from the Roman perspective. So maybe this started when Tiberius brings up the issue to the Roman Senate and says, should we declare this guy a god? And they say, nah, he's a faker. Another possible beginning of all of this could have been some riots that are believed to have happened in Rome in the 40s. So Suetonius, the Roman historian, in uh, his life of the Emperor Claudius, refers to the expulsion of all Jewish people from the city of Rome by Claudius. And he says, since the Jews constantly made disturbances 
at the instigation of one Christus, he expelled them from Rome. And scholars believe that what Suetonius was talking about was the situation in which there were massive upheavals in the synagogues between Jewish people that believed that Christ the Messiah had come and Jewish people who believed that the Messiah was yet to come. And that these disagreements often turned into violent outbreaks. In the book of Acts, in the 18th chapter, we see a kind of parallel of this event. So this is Acts 18.2. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a man of Pontus by race, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came unto them. So maybe the persecution didn't start with Tiberius, maybe it started with uh, Claudius, in which like, there was so much turmoil caused between the Pharisaic Jewish people and the Christian Jewish people that Claudius was like, all right, to heck with all you guys, get out of here. Whatever the case may be with Claudius and with Tiberius, we certainly know that by the time of Nero, the Christians were a real problem and a real pariah as seen by the Roman Empire. So in Nero's day, the emperors had a palace, and it was a fine palace, but it wasn't like top-notch. You know, the emperors saw themselves as the most powerful people in the known world, and to live in kind of like a mediocre palace was really just a humiliation. So Nero had this great idea of making a palace that would be a reflection of his own inestimable glory. He wanted a really fancy, amazing, world-class palace Choose just acres and acres of ornate gardens, all kinds of gold, stone. It would just be a really, really great thing. So we had an architect draw up plans. He's like, these look really good. You know, I love what you're thinking here. The problem was real estate. Because his current palace, even though it was huge, only took up a certain footprint. And what the architect had drawn was like a million times larger than what he currently had. So Nero had a problem. He needed a little bit of space. Just when he thought, you know, I'm just maybe I'm just going to have to fold up these plans and put them away, this crazy thing happened. And in the area right around his palace, a fire broke out. And it burned exactly the amount of land that he needed to lay out his big, new, massive domus aurelia, like the, the massive palace of his dreams. The city of Rome was divided into 14 sections, and in this fire... Three, three of those 14 sections burned completely to the ground. Seven other sections of the 14 were partially burned, and a huge swath of Rome was just laid open for new construction. And so people started to say, isn't this a little bit convenient? The historian Tacitus tells us, but all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order from the emperor himself. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty, 
Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered with the skins of beasts they were torn apart by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt, to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle, and was exhibiting a show in the circus, while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft on a car. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion, for it was not, as it seemed, for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. So this was the first serious systematic persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. But it didn't happen in the entirety of the empire. It happened in Rome itself, in the city of Rome and probably the surrounding areas. So if you lived in Alexandria, if you lived in Jerusalem, if you lived somewhere far flung away from Rome, this didn't affect you. But if you were a Christian in the city of Rome, this was really bad news for you. And it was in this, in this persecution that St. Peter and St. Paul were martyred in the year 67 AD. From this time forth, there were periodic persecutions of Christians in lots of different localities. So they weren't empire-wide, but on the model of Nero's purge, Christians in specific places would be rounded up, tortured, and killed. We have this amazing letter that was written to the Emperor Trajan in the year 111 by Pliny, who is at that point a Roman official, a governor of Bithynia. And Pliny says, It is my practice, my lord, to refer to you all matters concerning of which I am in doubt. If I got a question, I'm going to take it straight to you, Trajan. For who can give me better guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? You're the best. I have never participated in trials of Christians. I therefore do not know what offenses it is the practice to punish or investigate, and to what extent. And I have been not a little hesitant as to whether there should be any distinction on account of age, or no difference between the very young and the more mature. Whether pardon is to be granted for repentance, or, if a man has once been a Christian, it does him no good to have ceased to be one. Whether the name itself, even without offense, or only the offenses associated with the name, are to be punished. I need some guidance here, Trajan. So, if I find a six-year-old who's a Christian, do I punish that six-year-old as I would a 40-year-old? And what if somebody is a Christian, but they've never actually done anything bad in the name of Christianity? And what if they used to be a Christian, but they say they are no longer a Christian? Tell me how this all works. Just give me the orders and I will carry them out. He continued, Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that, whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserve to be punished. There were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to... I don't know exactly what they were doing wrong, but just their stubbornness itself, they should be killed for that. Soon accusations spread, as usually happens, because of the proceeding going on, and several incidents occurred. An anonymous document was published containing the names of many persons. Those who denied that they were or had been Christians, when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me, 
offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose, together with statues of the gods, and moreover cursed Christ, none of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do, these I thought should be discharged. Others, named by the informer, declared that they were Christians, but then denied it, asserting that they had been, but ceased to be, some three years before, others many years, some as much as twenty-five years. They all worshipped your image and the statue of the gods and cursed Christ. So I found some ex-Christians and some people who were Christians, but, you know, I got them to worship a picture of you, the emperor, to adore some statues of Zeus or Athena or whoever, and then to curse Christ. So I think they're probably okay. The interesting thing was, even though they had said Christianity, they're done with it, it's not their thing, they're very happy pagans, they asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not to falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. Even this, they affirmed, they had ceased to do after my edict, by which, in accordance with your instructions, I had forbidden political associations. Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deacons. But I discovered nothing else depraved except superstition. So I questioned, I interrogated, I tortured. Nobody would talk about killing babies with silver knives. Nobody would talk about the incest. Nobody would talk about anything that we all know Christians do. Instead, they were swearing to follow the Ten Commandments. That is very boring. And then they were gathering for a meal, maybe a meal of bread and wine. Is this the description of the Eucharist? And above all, they gathered to worship Christ as a God. He continues, I therefore postpone the investigation and hasten to consult you. For the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. But it seems possible to check and cure it. It is certainly quite clear that the temples, which had been almost deserted, have begun to be frequented, and that the established religious rites, long neglected, are being resumed, and that from everywhere sacrificial animals are coming, for which until now very few purchasers could be found. Hence it is easy to imagine what a multitude of people can be reformed if an opportunity for repentance is afforded. So before Pliny starts his persecution, apparently the temples had been deserted. Sacrifice was not being offered. Christianity had spread not only within the city, but to villages and farms. Great swaths of people in Bithynia, just this is in the year 111, so so early on, had been converted to Christianity. So Trajan writes back and he says, look, don't go on any sort of witch hunt thing. Tell magistrates not to investigate on their own if people are Christians. If someone's reported as a Christian, then bring them in for questioning. If they refuse to curse Christ and sacrifice to an idol, then, yeah, go ahead and toss them in the, uh, the arena. Let them be eaten by dogs or something like that. 
And this basically becomes the pattern for Christian persecution for the next 150 years. So you'll have a report that someone's a Christian, the Roman soldiers will go and knock on their door on a Sunday morning, they'll burst in, they'll haul everybody off. Everyone who doesn't make sacrifice to one of the Roman gods is then executed. And it happens in a kind of location-by-location, place-by-place sort of way. You'll have some zealous anti-Christians reporting Christians, and a lot of folks will get rounded up, and then you'll have other places where just nobody really complains, and it's not so hard to be a Christian. Until you get to the Emperor Decius. Next time we'll talk about how things went from bad to really bad to inestimably crazily bad, and then got somewhat better. Thanks for joining me for the History of Christianity. It was great to be with you.